everyone, welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that talks about TTRPG texts from an academic viewpoint. It also looks at academic texts that handle TTRPGs. We have to keep on changing this description as we change our material. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Oh, hi. I'd rather there's not us. an audience here, but you're dressing. <laughs> uh, it's just like, yeah, there's probably like a standing ovation for Mahar right now. I should be quiet for a minute while people just allow themselves to just vent how much they've been missing her. You don't see this, but I'm actually bowing to the people outside who heard me. They are applauding and they're crying, knowing that once again they could hear my dulcet tones. Are you going to cut in a laugh track? <laughs> it depends, it depends on how, how spicy I'm feeling at the moment. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. I don't exaggerate. I merely elaborate. Okay, so... I think you can use the tightest laugh from Final Fantasy X. Oh my god, that's... Just, okay. Anyway, anyway, here we are. New book. Not a new season, I think. We've lost track of these things because, you know, I've just life. been changing the season for every new book. Well, you see there, we, cha- we, you know. It seemed sensible at the time. Our future Eddie award-winning podcast in its X season. We're not sure. You know, <laughs> time has no meaning. Anyway, we're recording this on the last few minutes of what is Mother's Day over in the USA. So True. let's introduce ourselves by using our usual, like, getting to know you starting questions, which is, in this case, oh my gosh, Fiona, I forgot the question. Oh, no, oh. it's 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 the Satan question oh, for Mother's the, Day. Oh, yeah, it's the Satan question. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, we have very interesting talks before these podcasts. Okay, so what is your... the podcast, possibly. What is your... Oh, God. Mahar's attempt at structure dying in the first three minutes okay so here we go um yeah what is your favorite piece of satanic media uh well happy mother's day everyone my favorite piece of satanic media is actually still the exorcist after all these years i I rewatched it recently and it's spectacular um i will say this I very much prefer the version without, and this is, some people are going to hate me for this. I very much prefer the version of the exorcist without the crab walk. (laughs) Spoiler alert, but the crab, the no crab walk version is way, way, way better. The pacing is just like relentless in that version. Whereas they, they sort of, they show their hand too early with the crab walk. IMO. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll agree with that. Honestly, having seen, having seen both. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, her choice oh, who are you oh yeah shit uh i'm i'm a new person here oh yeah so, you introduce yourself yeah uh i am joe de simone i talk about games things um <laughs> on twitter a lot it's probably where people know me from if they know me at all um i also run a company called the academy of games where we teach game designed to adolescents and uh, adults and soon within uh, less than a month I'll start judging entries for uh, the awards which uh, is my alt any's Diana Jones awards any groundbreaker oh yeah I need to submit are submissions still open yeah for the next I don't know 20 some odd days yeah. um, 6-1-2022 is the cutoff um, 
Also, Jared, weren't you going to be a judge? I'm happy to judge. We did talk um, about that. We did. So if so you maybe do I that, don't submit. Can't submit. Yeah. Okay. So maybe uh, I don't that's, submit. That's then. your call. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd, I'd rather judge. Trying right, to better. be kind, resolving Jared, ethics Jared. one minute at a time. <laughs> Jared prefers yeah. to be judgmental to be lauded. <laughs> yeah, ju- judges are supposed to be anonymous, but uh, at least in the case of Jared, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, fuck procedure. And <laughs> I, maybe I'm not judging. judging. You don't know. Yeah, fair enough. No one knows. See this, but I'm just knocking my head against my palm right now. <laughs> it's just dear uh, gods on high and low. So, I'm gonna give a somewhat jokey answer, but uh, I think I think my favorite piece of satanic media might actually be Redbox Basic DNT. Oh, very good answer, actually. <laughs> wow, really on on point with the show, and, and it's Mincer Basic as well. Double yeah. heresy. What yeah, Joe? I'm gonna go with that. What Joe's not. Uh, sharing about himself is that he is basically D&D's version of Oscar Isaac. Um, um, yeah. You can just yeah. post a picture of me in the show notes. We can, you can post a picture. We can see that uh, silver streaks and the, yes. Yes, I'm here to uplift Joe today for whatever reason. <laughs> All right, Fiona, how about you? Oh, hi. I'm Fiona Maeve Guys, uh, antagonist. And my favorite piece of satanic media is... You know, it's probably Labas. Like, it's the first Black Mass, um, like, fiction. It's a French decadent book. It's really fun. I like A Rebours maybe a bit more. That's the book that Oscar Wilde has uh, Dorian Gray reading. But, like, Labas has that feeling of being really originary. Um, also, it's French. So, you know, very transgressive to the Anglo sensibilities. Oh, dear Mar. God. Once again, I feel like the shallow one, like swimming from the shallow end of the pool in terms of <laughs> well, cultural like, references. I, don't know. I also listened to a bunch of like goofy satanic music, but like goofy satanic music is kind of embarrassing. <sighs> okay, so Jared gives us a lauded film. Joe gives us a witty answer. Fiona's going to give us French lit. And I'm going to give you the Powerpuff Girls with all episodes that involve him. Excellent. That's pretty much Just it. Satan. Like, you know, like Satan in like fishnet stockings and high leather boots. Give me more of that. Let it be known. Let it be known that. Um, Look, when Satan posts thirst traps, it's just more likely that young people come over to the worship of the Dark Lord. Well, just let it be known that the Powerpuff Girls did it before Little Nas did. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's that's pretty much that's pretty much uh, where I stand. Throwing a spicy take at the end of it. Well, well, anyway, the reason why we talk about this, we're looking at a new book. We are looking at Dangerous Games. What the Moral Panic over Role-Playing Games Says About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds. This is by Joseph P. Laycock and published by the University of California Press. Now, this book was written in 2015. And looks quite a lot at, number one, the development of games uh, in much the way that uh, the, the elusive shifted. And then it goes, I think, into a more like sp- specialized take on the elusive shift, often looking like, almost looking, I think, sociologically at how religion and religious thinking intersects with hobbies. And it's actually quite a fascinating read. And as always, our first episode has to do with our session zero 
which is, you know, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Like, what what's the first thing that comes into mind when we remember? Oh God, we're going to be revealing ages again with this episode. What do you remember? How do you remember experiencing the so-called satanic panic? I, I don't. I'll be entirely honest. Um, I don't know if I'm the youngest one here. I'm 32. How dare you're than you? Me, then. How yeah. dare you, Joe? Look at this youthful Joe, silver <laughs> fox, and somehow younger than me. I mean, fuck seriously. You, fuck seriously. You. I'm going to take a shot of vodka now. I'm already I'm, angry. Uh, wait, am I the oldest in this podcast? Yes. Yeah. Damn it. I'm, I'm sorry, Mahar, but that's always true. Happy Mother's Day, <laughs> Milf. Uh, I don't know. I remember post-Satanic Panic media. I'm, I'm in a similar boat, actually. Um, and, and I grew up in the American South, but I didn't grow up around role-playing games. I didn't really experience role-playing games until college. Like, I, I knew of D&D by high school, but um, I'll say this. I have a much stronger experience of the Satanic Panic in relationship to Magic the Gathering than I do with Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I think that's um, just as valid of a, you know, your experience of Satanic Panic as anything else. Yeah, like, I, I distinctly remember in youth group some kids some of the older youths started playing magic the gathering and that was a big problem for the church youth group and they had to like come to conclusions about it oh my goodness so fiona how about you i mean you went so far as to design a book (laughs) around Um, it yeah i i i grew up technically on the mason dixon line um, more or less. And, you know, I grew up in basically an area that's part of the religious sort of revival of the Rust Belt. So, one, I played D&D a lot of my life on and off. But two, like, I grew up in what is basically a small town where, I mean, there is just sort of the thing of people are just baseline more religious in rural parts of the United States in that, like, I think even people that think that they're very secular are very religious and like a lot of the satanic panic fears were really prevalent in small towns or at least in the one I grew up in and in the surrounding ones I spent time in a joke of and this is actually real right like one of my friends who was religious in a religious household his in high school you know of the stack of illegal things he had in his hidden like space right on top of it is the handgun because like it's rural Pennsylvania. It's okay if you have a handgun below that's the weed because you know, like, yes, it's a felony, but like, you know, many teenagers do it. Then there's a pornography, which like that could lead to dancing and or music. And then below (laughs) that was the copy of Harry Potter, which was considered to be way more anathema than the things above it. But like today, if you told me someone had a copy of Harry Potter under porn guns and like, you know, a baggie of weed, I'd assume that they are like up to something really wrong rather than trying to hide the most villainous satanic gateway into evil. What if prep schools made cops? So, you know, Uh, maybe their parents were right. I see Um, we're all about spice rubs today because you're just rubbing in that spice friend. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, um, we are going to end up with a brisket at the end of the show. (laughs) Yeah, but, right, and, like, I do want to, because I realize I do sometimes seem very cruel towards people of faith, you know, or I do seem like I have a particularly negative opinion. Look, like, I grew up very ostracized in a community where most people are religious. 
I was not out as queer. I just was not a liked person on some level because I was fucking weird and different. And, you know, when most people belong to a church and most people practice a faith and you don't really exist within that because your parents are atheist scientists, um, you just don't fucking fit in with people and they think that you're a fucking weird person. And then anything you do that's different than them is more different I probably was more of a juvenile delinquent than I would be just because the only people that would associate with me committed petty crimes. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it is the thing of, it is really just fundamentally interesting how much like that stuff stuck around, but how it becomes like this game of telephone of like, you know, kids talking about like, Oh yeah. I've heard like people doing D and D like, you know, role played it, you know, with like handguns and such, you know, because of a mix of someone watching the movie, like where Tom Hanks is in the satanic zone because of D and D and becomes an asexual cleric. It's a really bad movie. Never watch mazes and monsters, but, um, you know, I, don't know. Like, I actually think that mazes and monsters is a great film, but that movie is a, an actual hate crime. Like, oh my god! Oh my god! The two of you. Okay, moving on. Anti-gamer propaganda. Moving no, no. I mean, on. in terms of pacing, it's just badly written. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I'm Mahar. <laughs> this is so crazy. Oh, but yeah, what is your experience of the Satanic Panic? Because like, that, I can just drift endlessly about this it, stuff. It's, like, it's it's just that. Because I'm the oldest one here, by I would imagine like a good number of years, I actually reached it. So, I mean, the Satanic Panic, according to this book, ended around uh, 1991, and I was already playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was in 1990 as a seven-year-old, because, you know, my older brothers played Dungeons and Dragons, and my mother was not going to find another person to sit for us, like all the kids are going to be looked after by the same person. So whatever you do, older brothers, you're going to include your younger brother in it because there's no way we can find another person to entertain your younger, the youngest while you're off doing your thing, trying to like shove him off because he's the youngest one, the usual thing. So yeah, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons in first grade. Um, a highly modified version, I'd imagine, because my brothers were just had to be patient with me. And then I would actually bring Dungeons and Dragons books to school where... One of my classmates said, oh my gosh, that's satanic. That's the devil's book. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what? Like, Mahara, you're, going to, you're in danger. And I'm like, what? And it became, a, it became a rather strange thing, really, to be told at eight years old that I was going to, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons was imperiling my soul. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it moved on to other things like Shadowrun also was for somehow reason satanic and RPGs in general were somewhat well, it, seen it, as like satanic. It posits orcs aren't evil. And that whole line of thinking leads you to bad places. You are trying Cultural to get us canceled. That's what you're trying to do. You shit star. Of Shadowrun. Um, and the cultural and moral relativism of Shadowrun is probably a problem for some people. Oh my also, it God. is kind of objectively true that like occultism and drug use do, in almost every role-playing game, make you better as a PC. Yeah. Yeah. Why do I feel like I this is the this is the one where 
the last time, the last series, we were looking at a critical role show, and I was so nervous. Oh no, we're commenting on a critical role. I'm probably going to get a lot of flames directed my way. And I was thinking, oh, you know, like history again, history book. Ha ha ha. We're safe. It's a history book. Yo, we're little did I realize. Of the United States, a theocracy to capitalism. <laughs> little <laughs> did I realize that I am more likely going to get burnt by this one. Thanks a heap. Thanks. A <laughs> yeah. Why do you think? Why do you think Fiona and Jared got off Twitter? And uh, I, I'm constantly trying to get run off. You put you put the three of us in a room and record us talking with no real edits. What do you expect? Dangerous I, games, indeed. I'm a gentle soul. I we try very hard here, to though. be kind. It's the title <laughs> of this podcast. We are we are exercising compassion in all of our academic takes. We are not here to destroy, but merely to elucidate. <laughs> well, but on that note, I really like this book. Like, I I think this book captures something that, like, all of the other readings so far were kind of missing by the way it talks about gaming as an experience, which sounds like such a milquetoast take. And yet, here we are. This book came out in 2015. Yeah, there's definitely kind of a... Like, I wouldn't go so far necessarily as to say phenomenological exploration of games, but um, it comes closer, I think, than anything else we've read on here, certainly. I mean, I I don't know that I wouldn't say it's a phenomenological exploration of games. Well, I right? guess like, I should say it's, it's probably not, like, explicitly phenomenological. Like, I, I don't think sure. he cites Husserl, but... I mean, um, like, if I'm thinking all American of religious studies is based off of William James' varieties of religious experience, and therefore at root is basically phenomenology. I mean, okay. and he cites James in the first, like, 20 pages of the book. Uh, if you True. have a religious studies degree in the United States, you've probably read William James, the varieties of religious experience, which is the <laughs> phenomenology of religion, for study it from a secular viewpoint. I, I have a minor in religious studies, I guess, is my entire joke at this point. Okay. Well, it's just more of think of it this way. Like, this book, I think, is quite different from the previous books because the Forge book, like, ostensibly tried to look at a design movement without really talking about the society behind or the society and context behind the movement, per se. I mean, it tried to by being all, like, internet jargony, I felt. Uh, and, <laughs> which, you know what? We did eight episodes on that book. I'm not going to relitigate that book. And then we have The Elusive Shift, which I think tried very hard to look at gaming, per se, in as, I don't want to say as pure a form, but more of try to look at the, at historical things, which are relevant to gaming. I think this is the book that is the most couched within society. And I don't think people really talk about like RPGs as a, you know, as an American art form, um, for lack of a better word. I mean, like not to say that, not to say that RPGs are exclusively American by any means, but a lot like musical theater. Oh my God. I can't believe there's a connection. <laughs> Really, you with with uh, things with which we glorify oh, the Dark Lord. Damn you've it. been yeah glorified the Dark Lord, and you talked about crit roll last time, and you didn't think there was a connection of musical theater. Oh my gosh! Like, okay, what screams but, theater kids more than a piece? But moving back, moving <laughs> back, it's just more like you know, like how musical theater, even though it also is not a uniquely American art form, it has become very much a leading 
a leading place for it. Like RPGs are to America in the same way that Broadway is to America, right? Like there's this, there is an American cadence to a lot of RPGs, whether we like it or not. And so, and so this is the first book I think that really looks at the Americanism of RPGs, particularly through that religious lens, because I honestly keep on forgetting that D&D was made in a place where there were quite a lot of people who are very devout people of faith, and they did react to the cultural things around them. I mean, just looking at the preface, right, which I found so humorous, where it talks about you worship gods from books. And already (laughs) I was like, oh gosh, this sounds like this, this, this sounds like this book's going to be a doozy. Well, I think yeah, it's interesting because I think on one level it presents itself as a historical text, right? It is explicitly talking about a very particular period in time, the early 1980s into 2001. But it also functions a lot like both a phenomenological text and an anthropological text without actually being an explicitly anthropological text, right? Definitely. If I were to compare this to something, I'd probably go with like, Nick Miser's tabletop role-playing games and the experience of imagined worlds or like Sarah Lynn Bowman's The Function of Role-Playing Games, right? It's it's not just discussing RPGs within their time frame as historical objects, but also what RPGs even do. And I think that's a lot... That's definitely getting ahead of ourselves in this first episode, but I imagine that's what a lot of the later stuff we're going to discuss is because it's so much of what he spends time on. Just well, maybe what, that's, what that's a good doing? thing. Maybe that's a good thing to, for, for us to say at this juncture. Cause I think this leads directly out of that. Can I, I I'm going to attempt to like present kind of an early thesis for this book. What, what I see is the thesis of the book. Um, and it's basically, and, and he establishes it very early um, as early as the preface here, but basically the idea in my mind, um, at least for how much I've read of the book, which is not all of it, is um, that the experience of playing an RPG is that of functionally a shared fantasy, right? In, in both a sort of literal and figurative sense. And that that experience bears some resemblance to religious experience. And that that resemblance, that very fact, is what made RPGs appear so scary to religious people early on in their existence. Yeah. Is it like a fair yeah. summation? I think that's like broadly pretty fair. Like we're definitely going to introduce some nuance to it, but I think that's true pretty much. Yeah. Throughout. Yeah. Like as an initial thesis here, I think, I think that's sort of where he's, where this book is sitting. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in that preface, you know, he, he cites not only William James, which we discussed, but like Rosinga, right. On like the idea of play as, and organized practice within a ritual space. Um, and like how that, like that's a, that's a hundred year old thesis at this point that fundamentally imaginative play functions like ritual and religious ceremony. Um, and I think he's kind of foregrounding how when you make, when you make certain parts of that, like explicitly a cult, people lose their fucking minds. You know, for me, it's when we are like, I just, I'm looking at this from the lens of more of this is yet another iteration of how people need games to blame for something and how you keep on seeing like I would I'd imagine the satanic panic 
is like one of the earlier documented versions of video games cause violence. Oh um, yeah, the intersection of those two, especially know, someone that liked Doom. Yeah, like, like that RPGs cause like cultish behavior. Like it's always gonna it's gonna go back to that whole notion of misunderstanding play forms and art forms because they are radical and subversive to people who have a very certain sense of how things should be. Because like when you think about it, I remember people not being so afraid about uh, satanic panic over the idea of um, uh, trigger warning. It's because it's like we're going to look at like some really close homophobia and transphobia coming up. But like people were saying that RPGs were not the instrument, at least from my context, they were not the instrument of the devil because they openly preached that you're supposed to worship Satan. But rather, it normalized the idea of imagining yourself as a different gender or different sex. Oh, that specifically, huh? Yeah, and therefore oh, that's interesting. And that's what made it the instrument of the devil. It was a subvertive, uh, you know, apparatus. It was basically like an ideological state apparatus for homosexuals and transsexuals and transgender people, rather, to, to like you know, to like use the book as their agenda to make people think of themselves outside of the bodies that God gave them, and therefore is the work of the devil. So it's it, it basically like metastasized from satanic panic into that and how it continues on in different forms across the world today. So that's, I think, for me, what I'd like to see how this book like explores that logic, largely because there's quite a bit of like faith thinking intersecting with what the actual game is. I'll say this. I've already noticed, like I noticed from page six, according to my marginalia, some interesting parallels, and we, we touched on this, I think, a little bit before before we started recording, but some interesting parallels to, like, discourse now. Like, I think there are some, some or maybe not now, maybe including now also, but not only, um, but there's some parallels to discourses that we've seen since the Satanic Panic was nominally over. Like, already I'm writing sort of, like, oh, look, this is a similar framing to you know, some things the forge was, was sort of going on about rhetorically or some rhetorical strategies of the forge or of even the early OSR. Like, I think there's some interesting sort of, um, some ways that that has managed that same sort of rhetorical thing or the, the preconditions of, um, the satanic panic, uh, are still relevant. They just get sort of moved into different realms. Um, so I, I don't necessarily expect that's something the book is going to cover extensively or at all, but it might be something fun that'll come up as we go through it. I mean, honestly, as always with these academic decks, I always get a little bit nervous because people don't, correct me if I'm wrong, people don't seem to like being told that their current complaints have a basis in the past and they don't realize that they're repeating the same argument over and over again. <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. yes, people want to believe that they're new and innovative with an exciting thing that no one has ever done or considered before. Hitherto unimagined. And, you know, the bit and dangerous games that I think is less prevalent in any of the books is just the point, I think it's on page 67, where there's the pointing out that, like, the business model of TSR was that of Gillette Razors. Their product was cheap blades that you break almost instantly 
but a handle it makes you keep buying things and you know that is the only system matters argument i will take as an <laughs> argument against my argument that system doesn't matter this has been fiona choosing violence um <laughs> hi fiona the podcast is called trying to be kind <laughs> trying i am kind are. I'm kind with violence. Oh Violently kind. Yeah. I know sometimes. I'm intensely calm and kind at others. Like, oh my God. Like a Haman energy. We are so, oh my God. And now a JoJo reference. We're so going to go to hell. Okay, going back to the whole idea of what's going on here. Like, the thing is, I think the reason why this book felt so attractive after Fiona pitched it to us, at least for me, was that... Um, we've learned from previous books before that people, at least in general, people also seem to talk about like gaming as the center of the universe. I mean, I think that makes sense, right? I think that makes sense that if you're working in the RPG industry, if you're deeply into the hobby, of course, it's such a central facet of what you are and, and what you do that we tend to forget larger contexts. And I think this book does remind us that, hey, this there's a larger context behind how your games are made and why this matters. Because when you're too microscopic in your scope, or you tend to, again, repeat arguments over and over. That was what, that's what really drives me crazy. Like, people repeating arguments that no one seems to want to resolve because they're more fond of the argument... And if you actually point to the origins of the argument, no one reads it. And that drives me ballistic. And I think this book is especially interesting on that point because, you know, like you look at something like the elusive shift or um, the forge book also, like they're looking at discursive practices inside of RPGs, um, which makes it very sort of directly a, Hey, we're still having the same conversation type of thing. Um, whereas this book is is looking at discursive practices sort of surrounding and aimed at RPGs. And I think it'll be fun, um, like I did I did mention earlier, I'm, I'm already seeing some parallels sort of to how RPGs have incorporated that that rhetoric that was once aimed at RPGs that we in in some segments we've tr- sort of taken it on and aim it at uh, smaller portions of ourselves. Um, so that that's sort of an interesting new angle on an old song, I think, that we've handled on this podcast already. How about you, Fiona? What excites you about this book? So, I mean, I I actually do think that religion is interesting to me. I don't really feel any faith, but I actually find faith itself quite fascinating. You know, it's why I studied it as like a thing. But also I think the the religious cultural context, both of the creation of D&D, because I think there is really something to be said for, there are definitively like very Midwestern and very like specifically American Protestant elements to how D&D presents the world. And I think it's worth understanding those as part of the origin of it, but also looking at how those are kind of just saying all stories look alike if you squint, which is a Joseph Campbellism, which is an old saw, which is also Joseph Campbell kind of selectively quotes mythology to make there be a monomyth. Yeah, I mean, but, that goes all the way back to early anthropology and like the Golden Bough and all that stuff, too. So, like, yeah, I've, yeah. I've read some Gordon Fraser. He's a fun one. Yeah. It's like that fun thing with the sword and the chrysanthemum where 
all of the things that were used for that book that was considered definitive about Japan and a lot of like the English speaking world was written entirely by a monk who had never been to Japan based off of letters that he just read from people and was like, yeah, I've just decided I've solved the entirety of another culture. You know, yeah, that the, sounds about right. Yeah. The Buck Wild era in which like white men just could do that in a university and people were like, yes, this is the foremost study as it is the only one that currently exists. But like I, that is right. Like why I'm excited for this is that like I think it's interesting to look at sort of the strange intersection of a game that was pretty clearly made by people where exempting that M.A.R. Barker was a a Muslim convert, you know, basically I think everyone involved in the creation of D&D was either a Christian or like a secular American, right? Like it it does have this very particular cast to it that maybe is the same way that like, you know, a lot of American movies are Christological even if they're not made by people who are explicitly Christian. Yeah, it is interesting how very similar the creators of Dungeons and Dragons look to the eventual creators of bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, you know what? Like, I'm just going to quote directly from the book here. And I think in reading the book, we're also going to really explore these questions anyway in our own like personal uh, narratives, which is, why did a fantasy game fill Christian critics with such fascination and horror? Why did stories about a game of imagination that drove people insane receive so much attention from talk shows, psychiatrists, and law enforcement. These questions led to an exploration of how we define such concepts as, in quotes, reality, fantasy, and religion. I found that fantasy games like D&D often can resemble religions, but religious worldviews can also resemble a shared fantasy. This second insight likely motivated much of the religious antagonism towards fantasy role-playing games by accusing gamers of delusion and heresy. Religious claims uh, makers, rather, police the boundaries between religion and fantasy, assuaging their own doubts about the status of their world view. And that's from page 14 of the book. And I'm thinking, he does not pull punches, does he? <laughs> He's. Uh, no, there's also the part where he says that, like, literally at the point that he publishes this, like, no one in writing about role-playing games has done better than Fine did. And that, like, you know, the purpose of this ago. book is to point out that like it is meaningless to talk about games from within games or about games as texts but rather to talk about them as a cultural object in situ is how you can really talk about them and make them meaningful and it's like yeah that feels refreshing yeah i mean i'm gonna say something controversial and derogatory here hit me (laughs) most people who publish games on game studies topics as pertain to uh, role-playing games do bad scholarship. Oh, I agree 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I have no qualms uh, about saying that, yeah. yeah. This is one of the first books I've read in a while that I think is a piece of good scholarship. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's incredibly well-informed by the works that come before it. It makes really both empirically and philosophically interesting claims and then works to actually back them up. Yeah, and it does so with some amount of clarity and, like... I'm shrieking uh, inside. I understand your sentiment. I share it mostly, but, like, oh, my God. I know um, that you... uh, The writer also admits to being a gamer, but without, like, seeming overly precocious about it. Like, I think that was one of the things that was... 
I don't know, like, nice to just see the sort of model of, like, yes, I played role-playing games. It was fun. I think about them a lot. You know, here are some games I've played. And, you know, this is why I wanted to do this study. But, like, I don't want to dive into the minutiae of, like, the social world or of, like, the textual world. And it's, like, you know, that kind of is great. You know, let's mm-hmm. just describe this group as gamers and get on with it. You know, one day I think this podcast should cover a who's who of why of why no in terms of game study. Of why no's? Like why no. <laughs> like a who's oh, who okay. of like not why like, not like no. Not like homeless wine alcoholics. No, no, like, like the word why and then oh. So like, semicolon no like do not so read like, these smash people or pass everyone on the wikipedia page of list of game theorists yes yes I need, okay I let me pull that up because maybe we can do that as a lightning round i mean we need to keep these people honest right i mean far <laughs> be it for me to suggest that we are the I ones am. but i thought i thought academia was powered by peer review and i think at the very least we're peers Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, spoiler alert, I don't like any of them. <laughs> yeah. Jared, I like zero percent of them. who do you like, Jared? And you, I honestly think of the three of us, you are the one who has to try hardest to be kind. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think the only the only games theorist I have any time for is Ludwig Wittgenstein. Not even Kawa? No. God, no. <laughs> The, the Huizinga apologist? No, thank you. <laughs> Look, I'll throw in... I'm looking at the list now of, like, anyone where I believe that these... I'll say Olga Bondereva, uh, which I'm mispronouncing, who did things about non-emptiness and cooperative games. You know, like, most of the people that did stuff about, like, bargaining solutions, nothing that, like, anyone... Oh, God. You know, Von Neumann? Pass. Hard pass. Are you looking, are you looking at the min-max theorem? Are you looking at game theory and not game studies? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, don't think, I care about game theory. Game studies is for people that aren't, like, really trying to break out into the broader <laughs> well, world theory, of Game theory doing is mathematics. pure math. Yeah, that's math. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. I was like, I know that name. That's not game studies. <laughs> Um, Are we really going? Oh no! What did I do? Yeah, no. <laughs> Ludwig it, it's, it's is a game lovely boy. I have no time for. for the uh, okay. Pure math all the time. Oh my gosh! You see, this is why we have to try so hard to be kind. Moving Whoa. back. Okay, Mahar's structure hat coming on. Okay, yeah. so what's going to happen with this book is this book is divided into two parts, and what you're going to hear in the next few episodes are basically like we're going to be looking at first um outside of this like session zero we are going to be looking at the history of this like we're going to look again at how the games were developed but not so much as the way the elusive shift look at the games in terms of like who was involved and what happened but rather what what were the, what were the cultures involved in what happened and what were their backgrounds as these things were made we're going to look at dungeons and dragons basically becoming this cultural event that required such a huge response that people were blaming Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games for all sorts of, you know, like, you know, malfeasance and and disturbance. And um, we're also going to look at, oh gosh, we're going to look at a world of darkness because that's the last part of part one. Oh my God, the world of darkness. 
this is the first time we're actually doing something that isn't so D&D centric to be honest um because well actually no but D&D is D&D centric it's it's, it's, wargaming into D&D into world of darkness but I mean it's not really all that interested in like the life of individual gamers so much as the world in which games circulate yeah it's a it's a rhetorical book really like a it's a discursive practice yes yes and then i think we're going to go into part two which i personally find to be my the fun part we're going to look at how role-playing games um create meaning that is the title of chapter six and how people basically uh looked at the imagination as something threatening uh, finally positioning itself as a rival fantasies. I just really love how <laughs> this writer, how Dr. Joseph, a doctor, Mr. Laycock, just basically goes up and says, you know, rival fantasies are the issue here, thereby implying very much that um, it's the fantasy of religion versus the fantasy of the role-playing game that are... The part about the erotics of fear, like, I am here for that. I am very excited to think talk about things that are you know involve arousal and terror and gamers these are important intersections that aren't delved often enough oh my gosh okay all right so this is i think we have a lot of work ahead of us actually i'm excited for this yeah it's a chunky one it's a chunky boy i might get to to talk about publics we might get to have a big conversation about publics at some point yeah, I mean, I think you could, you could do a like a an episode per section of this. To be entirely yeah. honest, yeah, There's... we could definitely do a um uh, uh something more akin to what we did for the the first book, but that was that was a marathon. That's like yeah, almost a year. We're yeah. never doing that again. <laughs> we are never <clears throat> doing months, that again. Maybe, but like, no, I don't really want to do six episodes on any one thing, no matter how much I like it. I mean, look, people seem to have enjoyed that series. I mean, we really did deep dives, mm. but. We did more work on that than most people do on their academic thesis. So, no. If I had to work that little for my PhD, I would be so much less of a sad person these days. And (laughs) hi, Miss Therovia. No, but come on. That was at least a college-level thesis. Oh, yeah. yeah, You know, like, that was beyond a book report. We explained phenomenology, for God's sake. (laughs) We and good to, thing, because we have come back to it several times. I, You know, we should just do an episode called A Primer on Phenomenon... I just did a shot, sorry. Phenomenology. No, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about Husserl. Like, I just don't. Like Husserl. And also, <laughs> later, lovely Ludwig Wittgenstein. I just yeah. don't. The only good philosopher. No, no. The, the just, first and last philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Oh, <laughs> one who never took a philosophy class and was contemptuous of the entire field. <laughs> the Nietzschean Superman, deeply weird religious boy, mathematician, failed inventor, and best logician to ever exist in that he solved the field of philosophy. Obsoleting it, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Twice. <laughs> yeah. Also failed public school teacher in Germany. What's wrong with us? Why are we the way we are? <laughs> um, because of, you know, a cultural degeneracy. 
Thank <laughs> you.